Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Thomas Show joining us on the phone, as he always does on earnings season for the big banks on Wall Street, KBW CEO. Tom, fantastic to catch up with you. Just walk us through the unprecedented environment we're working through right now with Wall Street's biggest names. Well, first of all, uh, I've never seen a recession come this quickly and this hard. So this is somewhat unprecedented. But I was just listening to your conversation just now, um, and you know, there are going to be a couple of ways that, that Wall Street's going to interpret these earnings. And you have to also understand, I just saw them myself. We were looking for a $3.9 billion provision, came in much higher. The question is, does J.P. Morgan see something that makes them terribly more cautious? Or in some ways, you could think that the company is enormously well capitalized, has a great top line of earnings, and in some ways, just go big, take a big provision, and in some ways, there are going to be some folks to just use a non-financial term. Are you ripping the Band-Aid, building a, a fortress balance sheet? This is your first quarter to do that since the virus arrived. And, and was, it, was it more precautionary or was it in reaction to something that they believe is going to happen? And I think that's going to be what the street's looking for when we hear their 830 conference call today. So, Tom, let's explore that further. I don't think anyone can tell us when we're going to reopen. Nobody can tell us when we're going to normalize. We can game out a series of things, though. We can work out what any individual company is preparing for. Are they preparing for a one-month shutdown, a two-month shutdown? As you look at the numbers this morning, Tom, what is that a bank preparing for? What kind of preparation are they taking for a duration that lasts a quarter, two quarters, a slowdown that goes beyond that? So we were looking for a loan loss provision of $4 billion in this quarter and then, and then increasing to something more like maybe, let's say, $12 billion in the second quarter. So the question is, how much of that first half loan loss provisioning happened in the first quarter instead of in the second quarter? And, and I'll give you another dimension that's not actually embedded in this press release but should be talked about, which is, what are the credit losses that are expected over the cycle? If we're going to do the global financial crisis again, then that would be a very high single digit. Like, let's say you'd have 8% of the loan portfolio would be, would be charged off over a period of several years. The, we have been modeling something closer to maybe 4% for this cycle. If it turns out to be something more extended, then I think that will change the dynamic a little bit. Because everything that we've modeled with more like a 4%, even up to a 6%, is something that could be well handled by the capital base and the earnings power of the banks. And, and so I think that's the framework, because this new accounting provision, which is called CECL, requires the banks to provide for their expected credit losses over the life of the loan. That is very different than prior crises, where banks met the losses more real-time. And so that's what the market has to understand. That's why I was thinking my earlier comment that is this kind of a go big moment for J.P. Morgan? Rip the Band-Aid, take a bigger provision, let's get out ahead of this because we're financially strong and we can. Or do they see something that's changed their opinion about the credit cycle over its entirety that we need to hear about? That's what I'm looking for. 
And we'll get more color, hopefully, on that at 8.30 Wall Street time uh, when they do have their press conference. Tom, I'm wondering going forward whether you see this as a position of strength for the banks to act counter-cyclically, as John was saying, and the idea with Betsy Grasick of Morgan Stanley saying they actually stand to benefit on the other side of this because they have these fortress balance sheets. Do you agree? I I do. I mean, I'll pick on Citigroup for a second. And... I checked uh, last night. At the end of 2007, Citigroup had 2.6% tangible common equity ratio. Today, that number is around 7.5%. So that's, that's, north of two time, that's north of three times the capital base at the core of the balance sheet, plus the liquidity is far stronger. So I think this cycle, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tested but, but, but the banks are in a much better position to take these yeah. charges and move forward. So, but again, that doesn't mean if we, get a, if we get a credit loss cycle like the global financial crisis, then things could change. John Farrell and Lisa Bramowitz with Thomas Schilder, Stiefel KBW. My name's Tom Keen. I just wandered in off the street. Oh, welcome Good morning. in. Welcome in. <laughs> Show started eight minutes I was, ago. I you got, don't need to restart it now. Just got, ask him a question. I got delayed. I was down Madison Avenue at J.P. Morgan setting up a Christmas club account. I got a toaster at the end of uh, December. If Congratulations. I well Christmas club account. Thomas showed, you know, you just alluded to the power of Fortress Diamond or Fortress Balance Sheet and all that. I get it. How many other banks, though, are like J.P. Morgan? And the answer is not many. Is this going to be a big deal across 500 banks or 600 banks, this new accounting provision, given the pandemic shock, that they're really going to have not the financial or balance sheet power that J.P. Morgan enjoys? Um, look, I, I think J.P. Morgan is it, uh, it's good that they go first generally, uh, even though I think First Republic did just report also. But even it's good that they're a smaller regional bank, but still in the S&P 500. But um, I think it's good that J.P. Morgan goes first, because like you said, they are a best-in-class balance sheet as well as profitability. I think that there are other banks that have about the same capital ratios as J.P. Morgan. I'd say in the same league. What other banks don't have, Tom, is the pre-tax, pre-provision earnings power, and that is what's real. It's we call it the earnings shield. So if you've got good levels of profitability, you know you typically it, it drives returns for your shareholders, but it also protects you in a downswing. Yeah. J.P. Morgan has that. Whereas there are other banks that just aren't yeah. as profitable as J.P. Morgan, and, and that's where the gap is yeah. wider. Lisa, the CFA definition for what Mr. Michaud was just describing is called minting money. Yeah, well, minting yeah, money and, and, and consolidating money. And that's actually where I wanted to go, because there is this feeling that the biggest banks will get bigger in this crisis, in this downturn, because they do have the wherewithal to withstand this and to even benefit on the other side. Tom, how much do you see that happening? Oh, it, it's going to come because while, the, while I, I'm not a believer that the world's going to be turned upside down on the backside of this, but, you know, one of the things we don't hear is complaints about people not able to move funds or because of all the digital access. So what this is, I think the studies that are going to be most interesting to read afterwards is what did bank customers do when they couldn't get to the bank? The reality is, is they did what they did before the crisis. They used more digital and so banks that have the digital capabilities, I think, are going to really prove that they stood up 
really well for their clients. And I think banks that didn't have it are going to re-examine it, and I think that could help cause fuel for consolidation. The other thing is on the back end of this, I expect that we're going to have near zero interest rates for a while. And if you're a bank that is entirely spread dependent, meaning you don't have other businesses, it's going to put huge pressure on your earnings, and I think it could be a driver for consolidation. So I would expect there to be more consolidation on the backside of this. And and I want to get to another top point, Tom, you mentioned earlier, which is not all banks will, will perform equally here. There will be some banks that will underperform and, and will have bigger issues than others. So most of the time when I'm talking, I'm talking about broadly, but there will be a couple, I'm sure, a couple of banks that have a harder time during this cycle. Hey, Tom, always great to get your views, especially in earnings season. Tom, the show there of KBW, the CEO, wanking on JP Morgan numbers. Lori Calvacina is in the trenches on this. She's at RBC and does some wonderful work on the equity markets. Lori, to me, everybody's trying to get a bearing. They're trying to, you know, get to use the sailing illusion to get the keel set, get the sail set and move forward. How are you doing that? What are you using to establish a bearing forward? So, you know, what I've told my team is that we are just going to keep moving the ball forward. We're going to keep running the numbers, and we're going to adjust as needed. But we're trying not to get too caught up in the headlines of the day. Um, We're really trying to think longer term to the extent that we can, and we're just trying to process new information as it comes in. You know, I've been very focused on things like my earnings model, not because I think I'm going to get it perfect right now, but because it helps me digest the information as I come in to really understand, you know, what I know about this reporting season, I really need to understand what the hits are going to be to margins. That's something I have trouble modeling. If I don't go through the process and try to get my numbers as good as I can, I won't have that information and that thought process ready to go as I'm trying to digest this info. So, Lori, as you look at the new information as it comes in, this morning it's from J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, and I'm wondering with the loan loss provisions and any color that we may get within uh, 10 minutes' time from Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, how big of a hit are you sort of gleaning from the loan loss provisions, et cetera? Are you expecting to see sort of bleed out in Main Street going forward? Well, you know, we, we, one of the things we've talked about is the idea of collateral damage. And I think where the banks can be particularly helpful, to be honest, I'm not really so concerned about what their 1Q numbers look like. I'm concerned about what their read is on the economy, how they're handling their customers, how they're stepping up to really support this economy going forward. Um, so that's really the kind of thing I'm going to be listening for. The other thing, frankly, I'm going to be listening for is what companies, especially on the financial services side, are doing with their dividends. What we've seen the past few weeks is that companies are defending their dividends, sacrificing their share buy backs. I need that dividend story to hold up to get retail investors back into the equity market. Well, Laurie, let's talk about it. How vulnerable do you think those dividends are if this lockdown goes on for, let's say, through May into June? So as we have looked back over the press releases, the 8Ks, and the early reporters that have come in since March 15th, and we picked March 15th because that's the day a lot of the banks came in and cut their their buybacks, Um, what we keep seeing is is the idea that this crisis will be transitory. I haven't been counting how many times I've read the word transitory, but it keeps popping up. 
And we see that in the context of some of those companies who have been defending their dividends. So my sense is that as long as this crisis is viewed as something that's going to last a quarter or two, not really bleed into the second half of this year, not really bleed into next year, I think that companies are going to be comfortable trying to ride this out and keep those dividends intact. If it looks like this is going to be a longer bleed, then I think we have to worry. So there's the new information on the earnings side, which we're getting uh, with progressive speed over this week and next. And then there's the positioning that John was referring to earlier and this idea that there does seem to be a capitulation with the Bank of America fund manager survey coming out and saying that there is extreme investor pessimism, the highest cash allocation, the highest cash levels since 9-11-2001. Do you think that that's enough to provide a floor to valuations or does this mean that perhaps uh, people could get surprised on the downside. Yeah, so I think that when you're looking at any of these sentiment indicators, whether it's their survey, my survey, or some of the weekly stats that come out, you have to look at the preponderance of the evidence. Cash levels going from 5.1 to 5.9%, frankly, that doesn't tell me all that much. And it flies in the face of everything that my clients have been telling me since this crisis began, which is that they have been looking for opportunities to upgrade their portfolio, buy names that have been on their shopping list, and our trading desk has been busy. So, you know, I, I hear that. I don't know exactly who they're talking to or who they're surveying, but I'll tell you, it doesn't jive with what my conversations have been. It also doesn't jive with what my investor survey that I took at the end of March showed, which had 58% of those who responded were bulls. And that's the highest level of bullishness we've seen in three years. That's more in sync with my conversations. Now, other things we've looked at are the CFTC data on U.S. equity future positioning and the AAII bears. Those did show that levels of bearishness and pessimism were achieved, but not the most extreme levels that we've seen in the past decade. So CFTC never got back to the 2016 lows on equity future positioning, and AAII bears topped out around 52%. It got back to 70% in the financial crisis. So I will say at best, you know, I think that the sentiment picture is a bit mixed, but, you know, my work just really doesn't jive with that B of A survey. I got eight other questions. Lori Calvacino, we don't have the time, but this has been brilliant. I'm going to break the rule here. Jay Bryson is a wonderful economist with a big, broader view, of course, uh, with Wells Fargo. But I'm going to go narrow right now, Jay, and I'm going to go forward to tomorrow and arguably the first real look we have besides horrific claims at this new American economy, and that is a look at retail sales. Wells Fargo, with the heritage of John Sylvia, is wonderful at parsing retail America. What do you see right now? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag, Tom. I mean, you know, on you know, we know that things like restaurants and hotels and things of that nature are all going to hurt, you know, very, very weak. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's going to be a partial offset, and I want to stress only partial. Um, you know, people surge to grocery stores and warehouses and things like that to stock up in in, um, in March. And, and so it, tomorrow's, tomorrow will probably be a, somewhat, somewhat of a mixed bag. It should be a big negative number. But you know, when, when, when we look at April, uh, when those numbers print a month from now, I think that's going to be even you know, weaker as well. 
Jay, there's also a question. I mean, looking past retail sales, the big number this week is Thursday, where we get the next jobless claims number. I am still absolutely dumbstruck that nearly one in 10 Americans has lost their job in the past three weeks. And I'm wondering what you're expecting in terms of Thursday's number and how quickly those jobs come back, given the fact that we are seeing destruction that cannot be replaced when it comes to going to restaurants or going to hotels. Yeah, so uh, last week it was uh, the number was 6.6 million. I, I don't think we're going to get quite that bad, although it's going it'll, it'll be another in the millions. Um, you know, our guess here is when it's all said and done, you're going to look you're looking at somewhere uh, north of 20 million people who who will be losing their jobs, you know, in, in you know these these weeks um, here. Um, how fast does it come back? It, that, you know, it really depends on how quickly the, the economy opens back up again. And that's really, that's the virus's schedule, as Dr. Fauci would, would say here. And, and, and so we'll, we'll see what happens there. You know, all these programs that have been put into place by the federal government, by the Federal Reserve, it's acting as a bridge to get not all, but many businesses from where they were in February, March to sometime afterwards, sometime late spring, early summer. And so some businesses, you know, who are still, you know, intact, uh, maybe they're not, they're restaurants that aren't, aren't open right now, but they will come back. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a pent-up demand among people to go out and socialize and, and things of that nature. You know, that said, we're not going back to February you know, come September. Uh, the, the unemployment rate is not going back to 3.5%. Um, this year, um, you know, our forecast goes out to the end of next year, and we still have the unemployment rate north of six percent um, next year. You know, some of these jobs that have been lost uh, will be lost, you know, forever. Um, not all of them, but um, you know, some of them will, will be lost forever. Jay, for a lot of our audience, they hear repeatedly all of these different forecasts coming from different places, including the IMF and yourself at Wells Fargo. Can you help me understand the basic assumptions that? underpin your forecast what are the basic assumptions around when an economy like the united states starts to reopen again right okay so our assumptions are we assume that the the economy is going to start to slowly reopen late spring early summer so let's call it you know sometime the end of next month um you know into into june uh we also assume crucially that um and, and let me let me back up one of the reasons that we assume that is that we get you know, we flatten the curve, that we get control of, of this thing. If, if, if that doesn't happen, then the rest of the forecast just falls apart. Uh, but, you know, so we assume it slowly starts to open up late spring, early summer. And then crucially, we're also assuming it doesn't come back in a, quote, meaningful way later this year. And again, if that's incorrect, then the rest of the forecast kind of kind of falls apart. And, you know, John, frankly, it's a lot of this is guesswork. At, at this point, I mean, educated guesswork, but it's guesswork. We, we just don't have a roadmap here. We've never seen anything like a sudden stop to and not only the United States economy, but to the global economy. So we're all kind of flying blind uh, when it comes to forecasting. So, Jay, just sort of picking up on the IMF forecast with the worst recession since the Great Depression, how likely is it that we do see another depression given the fact that that bounce back looks less and less likely the longer this drags on so i i think my sense is 
talk about a Great Depression, I think that's a little bit overblown. I mean, the, the recession of 1929-1930 turned into the Great Depression because of an utter failure of policy. The Federal Reserve did not do its job as lender of last resort. Um, and so the banking system collapsed in the early 1930s. Credit dried up and, and, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not billions of businesses went out of business. And that's how you got the Great Depression. Plus the fact that fiscal policy didn't really turn stimulative until 1933-1934 with, you know, the, 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 some of the New Deal sort of programs. This time around, uh, policy has been very proactive, right? The Federal Reserve has just opened up the taps to keep all sorts of different financial markets uh, liquefied. Uh, fiscal policy has also mm-hmm. turned very, very stimulative. The banking system today is much better capitalized than, than it had, certainly in my lifetime and probably back during the Great Depression uh, or, or in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And so I think the way you potentially could get to a Great Depression is if this virus comes roaring back again in the fall, not only in the United States, but in the rest of the world. And then all these measures we've put in place <clears throat> up to now, right. um, you, you, you guys got to do it all again. Yeah. Jay, is a job at Amazon a real job? I mean, as an economist, when you look at 100,000 jobs created, and I believe yesterday Bezos and company said they're going to go out and find another 75,000 warm bodies to do the Amazon thing. Are those quote-unquote Good jobs? Well, I'm not going to opine on whether they're, quote, good jobs or not. I mean, I, I don't know about, you know, how much they're getting paid and the benefits and things of that nature. But, you know, they are they are creating income. They are creating a service for people. Um, and, and whether or not people decide to buy goods online via Amazon or at their local retailer, you know, in some sense, I, I, I don't really care. It's, 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 it's a job. It creates income. Um, it creates value in, in the economy. So, um, you know, again, I don't know anything about the, the level of wages and, and benefits that those jobs pay. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly jobs. Yeah. Jay, sure always I, great to catch up with yeah. you. Always great to hear from you, Jay. Jay, we always refer to you as the acting chief economist. Can you tell your manager that if they don't get this done soon, we're just going to start calling you the chief economist <laughs> at Wells Fargo? Tell them they've got a month. Yeah. Uh, I'll send, I'll send the, ta- uh, the tape of this to him. <laughs> yeah. John, I, did, I looked at the Amazon job. I believe it's $17 an hour, which is $35,000 a year, sort of like a run rate, roughly. And these are the people don't, don't that we now say that. are essential. So if we're going to call them essential now, I think that after this fades, yeah. they need to come back and say, well, you guys think we're essential. Let's start seeing some of that money. Yeah. Harry Chilingurian with us with BMP Paribas with truly decades of exposure. Harry, what is the symbolism of Western Canada hardesty closing under $4 a barrel yesterday, right on the cusp of a record low? What is the, the symbolism of that in this conundrum of tanks up to the rim? I, I mean, what does that signal to a guy like you? Well, it certainly signals a drop in uh, U.S. refining activity, especially in the mid-continent, a drop in U.S. refining activity on the Gulf Coast. These are really the heartlands of, of U.S. refining, and it's just the broader reflection of a big decline in demand for oil products. 
and thus we end up with these prices of oil that are severely discounted to the benchmarks in the case of regional markets like uh, Canada. Harry, I'm struggling to understand the path forward, the idea that these production cuts that were agreed upon, uh, you know, for put enforcement and compliance to the side, these cuts that were agreed upon almost 10 million barrels a day in production cuts, they're set to go into effect on May 1st. A lot of people say that they probably won't go into effect until June just because of barrels that have already been sold in the futures market for May. How much does this actually change the equation when it comes to much lower oil prices in the very near future? Well, I think that's a really valid point uh, between the time of, uh, you know, intending and agreeing a production cut and the, uh, the physical implementation of that. It's going to take some time. So even as these cuts are for... Uh, effective May the 1st, uh, it's not going to be till later that we see reductions happening. So this is why I guess the market, especially uh, at, the, at the front of the curve, is being extremely cautious because we're not really addressing the demand decline through these cuts uh, in the very short term. So it's only going to be, you know, by the end of the year that we're really going to see effect of these cuts, especially when we have uh, demand that has been locked down, unleashed with the progressive lifting of confinement measures and other social distancing. Harry, I'm looking right now, West Texas uh, prices at $21.92 a barrel, plus or minus a few cents here or there. I was looking at projections saying that 40% of U.S. shale companies will go bankrupt if prices don't get back up to $30 a barrel or beyond in the near future. How likely is it that those projections are going to come to pass? Well, I guess uh, two things to consider. There are a certain number of these companies are actually hedged for their production, but those that are not, probably the smaller players will face difficulties. Typically, the, the break-even oil price in, in the Permian Basin that, that drives U.S. shale supply growth, uh, that break-even price is closer to, to $40. So I guess that's uh, well, one of the aspects. The other thing, of course, is the banks that do fund a lot of these highly leveraged companies, the question is, what are they going to do? And I think what we're going to probably see, uh, especially in these, uh, you know, extraordinary times, is that banks will probably want to at least try to keep on board some of these companies, restructure debt, and, and, and try to wait till the end of the year when the oil prices uh, rise. Let's explore this question a bit further, because I think it's really important, Harry, what Lisa asked. We've been reflecting on cutting supply, cutting output in places like Saudi Arabia, Russia and elsewhere. We've not been thinking about taking out capacity. Even when this economy normalizes, these things won't pick up again. Your thoughts on that, taking out supply versus taking out actual capacity in the United States? Well, I think that's a really interesting question, because when you look at uh, now the expectations for market-driven declines in, in production and possible shut-ins, there are two things to, to consider, conventional production and what would be short-cycle, non-conventional U.S. shale production. Because if you think of a place like Canada or Brazil, shutting down production is extremely costly. Whereas, uh, uh, in contrast, in the U.S., I guess uh, the oil market is what economists would call more contestable. You could get in and out at a lower cost. You don't have as much sunk capital in it. So... I would think that, you know, if you do have shut-ins in, in conventional production around the world, that may be more difficult to bring that capacity back in. Whereas in the U.S., uh, just the very nature of U.S. shale oil, yeah. it could bounce back rapidly. Now, folks, a dumb surveillance question of the day. I'll ask it. Harry, when we say people cheat, what do they actually do? I mean, when Kuwait cheats or the United States cheats, 
when you hear that phrase, what's it mean in the oil world? Well, I, I think really the, the optics of cheating are uh, down to the fact of trying to measure that country's production and see whether or not that country has been reducing production in relation to a reference level or a baseline level that has been decided uh, during meetings such as the OPEC Plus meeting. It, it, it's hard to say that the U.S. cheats because, in effect, you're not mandating a cut uh, for U.S. producers. The cuts will be market-driven, so it's not a question of cheating here. It's a question of economics and whether or not you know companies are responding to those economics okay. by slashing capex, for example, and so on. So the cheating aspect is really an issue of optics relative to measuring a country's production versus what it's producing. right. I mean, this is important. Lisa asked a brilliant question. John asked almost as brilliant a question, and I'll follow up with a dumb question, uh, which is which is just simple. What do you predict? On a price per barrel of all this, we're at $22 West Texas Intermediate. You said $40 is where they click in. What happens between $22 and $40? Well, again, we're back to uh, which companies actually have hedged some of their production this year. And, of course, they would have uh, hedged that at prices closer to $55 or $50 uh, on a WTI basis. But uh, there are going to be a number of small shale players that uh, will suffer, and some of them will indeed have to get closed down. So in that respect, we will have both declines in production motivated by the fact that there's a lot less capex. So you, you're not going to be drilling to sustain your production uh, as much. And then there's going to be the, the economics of the smaller uh, companies that may force uh, their, their closure. So these are the two dynamics in, in the case of U.S. shale. Hey, Harry, always great to get your thoughts on this program. Harry Chilingarin there, BNP Paribas Head of Commodity Research. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.